3: It's such a material connection with the past to see these objects that are all completely handmade, often beautifully decorated. they've lasted
4: in many for the ones in this project for over a millennia. That was Kathleen Doyle discussing some fascinating medieval manuscripts.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, where the UK's best selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now, before we get on to today's interview, here's a quick reminder of our next event, which is a Kings and Queens weekend taking place in Oxford on the 2nd and 3rd of March. It's two days of talks from expert speakers on a range of monarchs, including Elizabeth I, Robert the Bruce, Henry VIII, Empress Matilda and a whole lot more. Find out more details and book tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. Now, the British Library has recently completed a major project, along with the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, to digitise and make publicly available online some 800 medieval manuscripts. The project is entitled Medieval England and France 700-1200. It's a very big undertaking, which means that it's now much easier for anyone to enjoy the beauty of the illuminated manuscripts of the period. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with Kathleen Doyle, lead curator of illuminated manuscripts at the British Library, and the digitisation project curator, Toye Ainonen, to find out more.
5: So I'm here in the British Library, uh, I'm joined by Dr. Kathleen Doyle, who is Lead Curator of Illuminated Manuscripts here, and Toya Ainonen, who is the project curator on a uh, digitization project which we're about to talk about. First up, Kathleen, I love your job title, Lead Curator of Illuminated <laughs> Manuscripts. What's what's the day in the life of a curator of Illuminated Manuscripts oh, like? Oh, gosh.
3: Um it's it's always different uh it's a great privilege because uh i look after all manuscripts that are illuminated that means they have some kind of uh decoration which can be from uh, full-page painting to uh, uh elaborated initials in books and at the british library here we have about nine thousand of them so it's a uh, that's a great job
5: yeah a fun job I would imagine it must it must be enjoyable
3: i what I love about it is that um i'll I'll never know everything, and every time I get to look at a manuscript it's privilege um they're they're full of it's such a material connection with the past to see these objects that are all completely handmade often beautifully decorated they've lasted in many for the ones in this project um, for over a millennia and um it's it's just um quite moving sometimes really
5: okay and uh Toya, you are you're a project curator so you're handling documents i imagine on a on a daily basis or on a, on a regular basis what's what's that like
2: uh yes i um i joined a couple of years ago when this project started and it has been a very different kind of workflow during these two two years, because at the beginning of the project, I did very much work with the uh, manuscripts in selecting the manuscripts and kind of deciding which ones to be included in the project, which ones were the ones that we wanted to concentrate on. But as the project has gone forward, there's been so many different stages that a lot of my workflow has been quite administrative and following up that the uh, processes that the, happen here within the library. Within this entire two-year period, that they go smoothly and that they we are meeting the targets we want to meet uh, for the publication of, of that just happened a few weeks ago. Yeah.
5: Okay, so um, the, it's a it's a two-year project that you've been working on, and uh, essentially it's to have uh, digitised eight hundred manuscripts, uh, four hundred of which have come from the British Library, and four hundred which from the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. And they uh, date from 700 to 1200 AD. So they are late Anglo-Saxon, uh, early medieval uh, manuscripts. Um, what, more, what more do I need to know about this project? How has how's it, how's it been uh, progressed and how did it start?
3: It started with an approach from the Polanski Foundation, which is a, a private foundation that encourages um, research and promotion of cultural heritage um, Leonard Polansky uh, was educated in France at the Sorbonne, and he was very interested in promoting um, a resource that brought together the two great collections from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France and the British Library. So we explored lots of different ideas about what might be possible, and we chose this area, area um, partly because it works um, in tandem with the, uh, the launch of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms exhibition, which is on now at the library, but also because there's, um, it was such a period of fruitful cultural exchange between Normandy, France, and England. There are lots of English manuscripts that are in Paris that have now been digitised as part of the project, and similarly we have French manuscripts and Norman manuscripts that are here that travelled with... Um, uh, political figures and church uh, figures that went back and forth. Artists went back and forth. So it's a really exciting and innovative way to make all of this material available for the first time
5: online. Okay, so tell me about the, the digitization process. What's what, what's actually happened?
2: Well, in the actual digitization process, it's uh, it starts from uh, selecting the manuscripts. What do we want to include? After that, uh, we have had a um, conservator to check all all the manuscripts to make sure that they are fit for the digitization and that they are in a condition that won't uh, deteriorate through through the digitization aspect. After the checks, the manuscript went to the photographers. We had two photographers working for a year and a half, just solely on this project here at the British Library. And uh, the same amount of work was done at the BNF as well to just get them photographed. So it's uh, very manual labor, one page at a time, one image at a time uh, that the photographers can can do. After that, when we get all the images, of course, we need somebody to check that the images are there.
5: And... Um they 're all public access anyone can look at these uh, these documents on the sure. on the viewer as you said um, and uh, and there's lots of amazing fantastic detail there um, there's lots of beautiful illuminations. My question to you is um What's in it for the for the lay user, for the non-expert, the person who can't uh, read medieval Latin, can't uh, can't get to grips with the paleography? Obviously, there are some some fantastic, beautiful images to see, mm. but is there is there much else for for the lay reader to to get out of it? We
3: very much were aware of that, and so all, we, the other aspect of of the project. <laughs> is that in addition to the website that Tia's just described, where you can bring up manuscripts side by side and look in at incredible detail, here at the British Library we've built a new curated website Aimed at ex- exactly the audience you've just described, so this is for interested um, people anywhere in the world um, at any level. Really, we have um, 24 articles. We have very short descriptions of the um, of each manuscript of, of a collection of about 110, so the sort of highlights of the 800, if you will. Um, We eschew all jargon and explain terms. I think there are seven or eight videos on how to make a manuscript. We commissioned um, a calligrapher and artist to basically show all the steps from preparing the parchment to gilding to doing the design uh, we have two um, interviews with professors of history talking about how, what these manuscripts can tell us about the relationship between England and France at this time. So we're very much hoping that this is a way into this material for anyone who's interested in art and history in uh, law, music, uh, from this period, and that website is completely bilingual, so you can pick whether you want to um, to read these this in in England or in English or in French.
5: Okay, and so um, that's great. Obviously, yeah, the articles are, are are very interesting. I've had a look at, uh, at some of them, and mm-hmm. they're very instructive. Um, what about actually looking at the documents themselves? So. Is there uh, would you would you like to maybe pick out one or two that uh, that that are, would be really worth looking at for someone who's not at all familiar with uh, manuscripts of this period that would just give you a, a really nice taster to to, to understand what uh, what sort of things we're looking at
3: we have included some really spectacular manuscripts and as an art historian I, I suppose uh, one of the uh, I would perhaps choose an incredibly detailed psalter that was made in Canterbury. It's um, a copy of uh, something that was originally a continental manuscript. It's known as the Canterbury Psalter, but it's now in Paris in the the, uh, Bibliothèque Nationale. Uh, It has a series of eight full-page frontispieces with lots of little scenes telling the whole History of creation, and then a really um, elaborate presentation of the book of the Psalms in all three of St. Jerome's uh, translations or versions of the Psalms. It's got a, um, an Anglo Norman French um, translation written above one of these, and um, a couple of pages with Old English as well, and all of that's illuminated. Um, Conversely, there is um, a spectacular uh, gospel book, so the the four gospels that was made in Normandy in Preu. It's near um, uh, Rouen. That's now in the British Library. So we, we've sort of been able to have this virtual reunification of of these um, w- works of art, really, where hundreds literally hundreds of medieval paintings survive and they don't that doesn't that's not the case in any other media we don't have hundreds of medieval wall paintings if you go to the national gallery here you see the wilton diptych but here on these two websites uh, there's the opportunity to see thousands of of painting and they're they're often gilded so the the gold will catch the light Uh, sometimes there's silver uh, which can be tarnished or not also very um, bright and luminous and and then of course um, painted or um, um, decorated
5: um, images and illustration to these texts. What I'm wondering about is um some where did this this style come from where did the the idea of illuminating manuscripts actually arrive from what's the what's the, what's the derivation of this
3: well the it, it's uh the earliest illuminated manuscripts we have are probably fourth and fifth century it seems to be a very early from from the classical antique um tradition uh you, it's possible that this idea arose from the um, making stylized small decoration to separate elements of the text. So even in something like um, Codex Alexandrinus, which is a fifth-century copy of the Bible, you have uh, little palm trees uh, between books. So the in the Christian tradition, um, there doesn't ever seem to have been any... Um, problem with the idea of making manuscripts um, uh, the most beautiful and it, uh, and, the, and embellishing the sacred text. And of course, a lot of the manuscripts that we have in the in the project are um, biblical texts of one kind or another. Uh, but there's also um, a, a tradition of including any kind of a, a text with an author portrait. So the portrait of the person writing out the book, of illustrating uh, episodes um, in the text. I think it's with, with something that doesn't have page numbers and can maybe be a little bit hard to find your way around. If you start each chapter or each book with an illustration, it not only... Provides a sort of visual commentary on the text, but it also may help in um, navigation and
5: and how you how you use that how you use the book. Okay, um, you mentioned earlier that um, that the the documents that have been uh, digitized for this project, um, uh, well, they're currently in the the, the English and French uh, libraries, but they weren't necessarily you know haven't been there the whole time. Mm-hmm. They've, they've mm-hmm. moved around. So, how relevant is the fact that? that we've got this equal split of documents from the French and the and the British side is it is that actually telling us anything because these these documents you know they may well have been made in England they may mm-hmm. well have been made in France and they've crossed the channel is it is that telling us anything I think it, it, it's telling you that uh, uh, showing
3: that the great riches of these two national libraries that we could um, Digitize 400 manuscripts each, and we still haven't from this period of 700 to 1200, and there's still more to be done. Um, that's, of course, in um, thanks to great collectors. Uh, originally, as you probably know, the, the British Library was was part of the British Museum, so the foundation collectors of uh, uh, collections of, of of Harley, of Sir Hans Sloane, Sir Robert Cotton, and then later in in um, 1757, the addition of the the Royal Manuscripts, around two thousand manuscripts. So the these uh, um, early collections, which now form part of the the National Heritage, um, I think they they show, and and when we of course we're we're still adding. Um, to it with, uh, with gifts, donations, and, and acquisitions, um, the, the interest in preserving the past and um, preserving in the in case of these illuminated material, these great works of art.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
6: That's better H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra
1: tell us,
5: um, the, the existence of these manuscripts, what does it tell us about cultural contact uh, across the Channel during the period? Is it, is it going to illuminate us on that at all?
3: It's one of the interesting aspects of the project that we are including uh, material before and after the conquest. And I think what we are discovering is how close those contacts were before as well as after people moved uh, the thing about books is of course books moved artists moved um for example on the um uh on the uh, french website you can call up um uh, manuscripts that are held in different institutions that were probably created by the same artist and look at them side by side but uh, and uh, obviously, the, um, the impact of uh, and the interchange between um, monastic um, houses from Normandy and, uh, and England is incredibly close. So a lot of what we know about
5: this period comes from these, the, these books. Well, this is one of the interesting things, isn't it, the fact that the the books did move between monasteries yes. and across the channels. You said I've, I've often been struck. How did that actually happen? There wasn't, you know, there wasn't an interlibrary loan service, was there? How 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 did these how did they move around? Well, there sort of is in a way,
3: because if you, of course, with a with a, to create a new book, you need a copy, you need an exemplar, and if you are trying to um, Create either new work, uh, new legal text, or a, a collection of letters. You need something to copy from, and we have letters in this project. where are saying, "Well, please, can you send me your copy of um, Augustine or w- whatever? Because we uh, we we need to. We'd like to make our own copy. And so sometimes, sometimes scribes were sent to if the books couldn't be moved. But sometimes the books were. Were sent and then came back, and that, and that's exactly why I think another reason I think you see these very close artistic connections because there's lots of circulation of of text and ideas and artistic styles and people uh, copy and and get out, take ideas from each other.
5: So that's nice. So so there are, are there actually letters existing from. Abbott of Flurry to abbot of. Okay, we're looking at uh, the, uh, a piece. Two uh, just uh, called one up. Do yep. <laughs> you it?
2: Oh, it's just that, again. I wanted to bring it back to the website. Um, there's an article there just explores the circulation of manuscripts before 1200 and uh, how how did the manuscripts travel around and why did they travel around? In a very accessible manner. It's it's very very quick and easy and in a way entertaining read as well because for example here we have an example where. Um Lanfranc, who was Archbishop of Canterbury uh, from 1070 onward, um, who, uh, had a lot of connections to the continent and to Normandy because he had been an uh, abbot of Bec mm-hmm. before coming to, uh, to Canterbury. Uh, he sends a letter uh, and requests a copy of his own work. So work that he has written and composed he sends a letter to the continent asking, could I please have a copy of my own work sent to me so that it can be then copied in Canterbury. So it, it just means that when he came, came to Canterbury, he probably didn't bring his own book with him. He just left it at the library at Beck and then they uh, they sent him a copy. And now we have copies of that here in England as well.
5: So we can trace this this movement of the, of the, uh, the manuscripts across the channel between monasteries. Do, does that mean that the style uh, uh, between English and French manuscripts is similar, or can we see marked differences between the two?
3: Absolutely. Another reason that we were interested in focusing on England and France, it was representing the strengths of the two uh, libraries' collection, but also be- because precisely because people and books move so much at this period, often we we're, we can't tell or it's not easy to tell whether it's in, it was made in England or France. Of course, if you're a, a, a trained um, scribe in France and then you come to an English um, monastery, you're not going to change the way that you write. Uh, and so we wanted to have the opportunity to be able to explore that a bit further by digitising the full manuscript, obviously, This is going to give researchers um, an opportunity to see whether um, scribes collaborated in the same book. This is something that Professor Julia Crick um, talks about in her um, uh, interview on the the website and how this tells us about, it gives us information about who's moving where. Even if we don't know who they are, we can see that some scribes are showing uh, they're working in England, but they're writing in a continental style. So we're really hoping that this is going to open up and, and tell us even more about these this con, um, complicated web of, of interactions and um, uh, the, the transfer of knowledge
5: as well as, as the transfer of books. So you think it will be possible to, to identify individual scribes perhaps through the way they're writing things or, or more through the, the style of the illuminations? I think both, both are true.
3: Um, the scribes with the handwriting, definitely, that some of the decoration, particularly in the early part of this um, period, is probably scribal as well, and it's effectively elaborate, large elaborated initials. When you get to the more detailed painting like we were looking at in um, the Canterbury Psalter and some of these um, incredibly um, elaborate initials or illustrations, we're probably looking at travelling commercial artists. And indeed, there's... Um, One who's called uh, an artist who's works in both Normandy and in England, he's called the itinerant. Well, a a modern scholar has called him that because he's he's moving around a lot. So that's part of the rationale for the similarities. Um, It's probably some aesthetic choice as well.
5: Mm. I, I mean, there's um, there's been a lot of work done in biotapestry scholarship in mm, terms of trying mm. to uh, seeing similarities between work in, for instance, Utrecht Salter and uh, and Prudentius Psychomachia which is which is another one of your documents. Yeah, fa- isn't it? fabulous. Uh, uh, which uh, maybe maybe we can pull that one up while we're chatting yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, uh, showing how you know the 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 tapestry the embroidery seems to have been influenced by the artistic style in those documents presumably that's an example of of how you can trace these these artists and the artistry between the two you know if you know where one document has been held for a little while you can kind of sense yes no that's
3: that's an excellent point uh one of the two you mentioned that we've we've Newly catalogued and provided lots of information about these manuscripts. So one of the things that it allows us to do, if you want to say, "Well, show me all of the manuscripts that were made in Winchester or made in Canterbury or made in um, Paris or Rouen," then you can do that, and then all of a sudden, you can put you can you can put up to four manuscripts on the same um, website page. And you can say, oh, okay, well, actually, that looks like a lot like that, uh, either the scribe or the artist. And so I think we'll be able to then um, build some more connections um, because of this digitization. Yeah, so tell me about what we're
2: looking at. Oh, this is, is this is great. Oh, this is uh, this is one one copy that we have here here in the library of the Psychomachia, which is the War of the Soul. So it's a allegorical work, um, meaning that. Um, Seven virtues and seven vices are presented as human figures, uh, and battling for a human soul. So it's it's a it's almost like a comic book in a way of uh, of of these illustrations. They are done in a very distinct line drawing kind of style, and uh, it's just a fantastic imagery about uh, different uh, actions that these. Uh, Humans that are embodying the virtues or
5: vices uh, to to each other. We, we talked a little bit earlier about how um, how you can sometimes see the the artists within these within the manuscripts. Sometimes mm. You, you, mm. we think they might have inserted themselves in in some of the in some of the um, illuminations. Um, are there any other ways that we can see the hands behind the documents? Do we ever see the people who actually made them within the within the manuscripts?
3: Sometimes the um, uh, scribes will sign uh, their names or describe the circumstances of which they wrote it at the end of the book, and, and this is to you said it's a, in a colophon saying, in, "In the year X, I finished this under the reign of you know Y." Um, but thinking of the um uh, artists literally inserting themselves into the book, I was thinking of. I don't know if we can call up Edwin Salter, And One Five Seven, where there's this interesting um, image of under Saint Benedict of um, uh, a monk holding a book, uh, and there's been lots of discussions whether that person, whether that's a sort of is this the is this the artist? Is this the scribe saying, you know here I am there he is that's what I was referring to be. yeah 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 it's rather and and I like very much um that so you can you can even see the detail here. The little book says uh is, it's abbreviated, but it says the book of the psalms, so it's probably this very book which he's offering to the saint, and then he around his um uh habit. Uh, if you go back down he has it's written on his um on the belt the belt of humility so uh, it's maybe it's i don't know if it's very humble to present you <laughs> <laughs> uh so maybe this is the the abbot who commissioned the book who sort of paid for it. this might be the artist we we're we're not really sure but he's he's literally grasping saint benedict's um, uh, shoe and and kissing it and and presenting this uh, the book and a really vivid image, I suppose, of of somebody. Well, either the the patron or the scribe.
5: Yeah, um, and it's yes, a, a beautiful little little moment. There, again
3: isn't it? with again with this line drawing w- that we've been talking about before, this agitated style. Um, Yes you can the, see, you can
5: see similarities between the what yes, we were just looking exactly. at with the Cyclamic. Huh?
3: This is also an interesting image. Um, it's currently on display actually in the in the exhibition downstairs. Um, because Benedict presented as the state uh, at, at, sorry as a saint he's identified with his name in the, uh, the halo above his around his head. He's um, presented with in, in gold and colors. Um, very grand stately, and that but in contrast the he's monks to his left um, he's he's the the first one and uh, there's also some discussion that the the one holding the book that this might be the abbot um, and he's holding the first part of the Benedictine rule um, there they're not. They're, they're, they just have a very light-colored blue um, wash. So the contrast could well be deliberate that the, the saint is um, colored. He's in a, he's in a heavenly um, realm. And then next to him, the, the assembled monks are, are uh, just in,
5: in pen drawings. Much to look at and enjoy in that image, isn't there? Yeah. Um, is this, uh, would it be fair to say that the, the illuminations in these manuscripts and indeed the scribal work is broadly the hand of men, or do we see, do we know whether women were? Well, involved that's the problem. We don't know.
3: There, uh, there has been a lot of discussion, and there's some documentary evidence we know nuns were writing, um, I think, in. Um, Near Canterbury, um, they're not in this collection, not in this project, but there are images of, in manuscripts of uh, of nuns uh, inserting themselves in in the midst of an um, uh, an initial. Guda is a famous example of it. Um, so they were, but we just at this point don't have a lot of evidence as to the scale. The scale of it
5: okay um so so coming to a, to a conclusion we talked a little bit about some of the research um themes that you hope might come out of this project in terms of comparisons mm. between um uh collections and and where they might have come from are there any other um things sources um research uh, ideas that you hope might come out of this work that i mean medieval twitter was was agog and excited when when news of this uh, was announced the other day so presumably researchers will be coming to this collection and, and be, be all over it is there anything that you hope that might be achieved
3: i hope both well it's going to be and and uh, we've this is where we were just in, in Paris for the official launch last week and talking to um, academics there. And this will be absolutely transformative for their research because so many questions can be answered by using the digital images. But equally, I'm just as excited about making this information um Interesting, available to a much broader audience. Um, And I'm hoping that the these descriptions, the articles, the videos, we're hoping to add more videos, perhaps in a little animated film, um, to make this real this this period of of history and and of art
5: um, available to anyone who's interested. No plans to transcribe though or to, to um, translate? Massive,
3: a massive undertaking.
5: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
3: The well, some texts obviously there are there are modern translations. Others, like medical texts, for example, often there are no critical editions. There's nothing between us and the and the manuscripts. So this this is how we have our knowledge of um, of what was known about medicine and, and treatment in in this in the Middle Ages. Um, so there's lots to
5: be done. Well um, thank you very much, Kathleen. Thank you, Tui, for um, uh, an, an excellent introduction to what's a, a brilliant resource and one that I'm sure I'm sure our listeners will very much enjoy having a look at. Thank Wonderful. you very much. Thank, thank you. you.
4: So that was Kathleen Doyle and Toya Einonen talking about the Medieval England and France project. And if you'd like to know more, visit the website bl.uk forward slash medieval hyphen English French hyphen manuscripts. OK, well, that's about it for today, but we will be back on Thursday with more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.